A really good Old Testament story teaches us a lot about God and about us. Last week, we looked at one really good story about three boys and a king and a golden statue and a fiery furnace from Daniel chapter 3, and it told the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue. And when they refused and were called before the king, you remember the king asked the question, told them, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace if you don't bow down, and then asked the question, who is the God who can deliver you? And the boys answered, our God. Our God is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us, but if not, we still won't bow down. Great story, and you remember we tried to make the application that even though we don't have 90-foot-tall golden statues to bow down to, we've got a whole lot of golden statues. We've got a lot of people and friends and enemies and employers and the government and lots of people say, here's the value you need to bow down to. Don't bow down to your values. Don't bow down to your God. Bow down to our God. Well, that's what we did last week. Today, uh, we're going to try another great story, similar story. It took place many years later. It was a friend of the three boys in this story. There's a different king by now and a different test and a different punishment. But... Even though the supporting characters are different, this one has Daniel and uh, King Darius and a bunch of lions in it. Even though the supporting characters are different, the main character is still the same. And hopefully we'll learn something about him and about us. It's in chapter three and I, I, I hope, uh, uh, chapter six, and I hope you go home and uh, read the story after we tell it very briefly and talk about it. Because I think some of the the words as you read them will help you, will bring to mind what we talked about. It's in chapter 6, and the king is Darius. This is the third king that Daniel served under. Uh, Daniel was one of the original exiles from Jerusalem, came with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And by this time, Daniel's about 70, probably. He served in the kingdom for 50 or 60 years since he came as a teenager. And the king Darius had set up the kingdom with 120 governors or officials over all the land. And over them, there were three. Daniel was one of those three. And he was the most distinguished of those three. He had risen to that prominence. In fact, King Darius liked him so much that he was ready to promote him. He was going to put him over the whole kingdom, make him his co-regent, I guess. Well, the others weren't happy about that. For some reason, they didn't want Daniel to have that much power. So they set out to find fault with him. And they couldn't find any fault in his life, so they finally decided they'd attack his religion They knew that he prayed to Jehovah God three times a day. So they went to the king and proposed, let's have a King Darius month. Uh, For 30 days, 
nobody should be able to pray to anybody else. Any other God, any other man, anything, just honor you and worship you. King Darius thought, that's a wonderful idea. I'll pass that law. And they said, by the way, let's put a little thing at the end there, a little clause, that if somebody breaks this law, we'll throw them in the lion's den. And Darius said, okay, and signed it. Well, immediately the enemies of Daniel ran out and watched to see if he would still pray to Jehovah God. Daniel still prayed to Jehovah God. They ran back to the king and they said, we got a problem. Daniel praying to some other God. King Darius was upset because he liked Daniel. He respected Daniel. And the Bible says that he spent the rest of the day trying to find a loophole in the law. He didn't want to kill Daniel. And so he worked at it and searched everything he could. How many lawyers he brought in, I don't know, but he couldn't find a loophole. And at the end of the day, the enemies came back in and they said, it's the law. You signed the law. When the king signs the law, you got to obey it. So we got to put Daniel in the lion's den. King regretted it, but he brought Daniel in. He had to follow the law. He had him taken over to the lion's den and said as he went in, may your God deliver you. Daniel went in. They rolled the stone in front. They sealed it. King went home. The Bible says he didn't sleep all night. Jumped up at sunrise and ran back to the mouth of the lion's den and probably not too hopefully yelled in, has your God been able to deliver you? Daniel's strong voice came back, my God sent his angel. My God sent his angel and he shut the lion's mouth. They brought Daniel out. He had not a scratch on him. Darius had the accusers, the enemies of Daniel and their families thrown into the den of lions. And then Darius issued a proclamation that Daniel's God is the living God. Great story, isn't it? Good Old Testament story. And now that you know the story, I want to think about some of the situations in there that help us learn about God and about us. Let's start with this one. Think about this. Daniel had lived in a pagan land for 50 or 60 years by now. He was on his third administration. He had lived to serve one more administration. And understand that in this foreign land, there were probably very few other believers. There may have been a few left from the original exile, but probably very few. There was no temple to attend. He didn't get to go be with his fellow believers every week. He didn't grow up in a youth group. He didn't have a small group to go to to support him in any way. He was pretty well alone, folks. And for 50 or 60 years, week after week, month after month, year after year, Daniel served God. He stayed faithful. So how did Daniel serve God in this situation? 
You see, sometimes we think serving God is about being here on Sunday or being a faithful church member. Daniel didn't have any of that. But the Bible says he was faithful. The Bible says he was he served God. So how did he serve God? Well, he served God by living a good life. That was what he could do in this foreign land. How good did he do that? Let's read a little bit, starting in verse 4. When they set out to find something against him, it says, Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Get that. These guys were jealous of Daniel's power. They wanted to get him thrown out. They wanted him killed, for that matter. And it says they looked for everything, but couldn't find anything. I'm sure they checked the king's books to see if Daniel had been embezzling anything. See if they find anything wrong with any of his expense accounts. See if there were any bribes or cover-ups. Probably talked to all the women in the palace, see if there was any sexual harassment claims they could rise. You understand, they were after him. They probably checked his Facebook page. (laughs) See if there were any shady friends or, or pictures of him in a compromising situation. If they could find anything, might have checked his cable bill. See what kind of movies he watched. They were after him. And the Bible says they could find nothing in his life that would get him in trouble. Now, so the question is, how did he do that? With no support group, no help around him, all by himself. And maybe the answer is, maybe the answer is that Daniel thought of his whole life as a God moment. We talked about that last week, remember? A God moment is a time where you've been placed in it. Esther said, or Mordecai said to her, who knows, but you've been brought to this place for such a time as this. God puts us in those God moments where we have to make a choice. And maybe Daniel thought of his life that way. Every day, every decision, he was living to honor God. If he thought of it that way, he thought about it a lot like the New Testament says we ought to think about it. Paul says in Ephesians 4.1, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He spends the first three chapters talking about what God's done for us, and then he says live a life worthy of that. Peter said, live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Live such good lives among the pagans. Paul thought of it this way. Paul thought of us being foreigners, being uh, strangers in this land, and he said we're ambassadors. We're ambassadors in another land. That's how we ought to live. Secretary of State under Ronald Reagan back in those days was a man named George Schultz. And I read that Mr. Schultz had a large globe in his office. 
And when new ambassadors would come in to interview with him and talk about their posting and all that, he would talk to them and interview them and all that. And then finally he would say, now, you need to go over to the globe and show prove to me that you know where your country is. And inevitably, they would go to the globe and they would spin it around and they would point to Japan or England or whatever land, whatever post they were going to. Then George Schultz would spin the globe around and point to America. And he'd say, never forget. Never forget that you're over there in that country, but your country is the United States. You're there to represent us. Never forget it. That's the concept of an ambassador. And Daniel evidently never forgot who he represented. In fact, he did it so well that the, the next verse says, these men, Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in the connection with the law of his God. That's the way it works, folks. You live a good life, they, they, they'll seize on that if they can. The enemy will go after that. But if they can't find it there, they'll go after your service to God. They'll find fault there. That's where the enemy will attack. So, serve God by living a good life, but still you're going to have these tests. You're going to have tests of trust. His was a new law. A new law that said no praying except to the king. And if you pray to anybody else, you're going to be on the menu for the lions. That was his test. So, here's the next question. How do we know Daniel trusted God? How do we know that he trusted God? We know he lived a good life, but, you know, lots of people live good moral lives. How do we know that Daniel really, really, but if not kind of trust, trusted God? Well, I put on the screen, he showed that he trusted God by doing the right thing. Look at verse 10. The law was signed. Knew that the consequences were the lion's den. Verse 10 says, when Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Great line there. When he knew the law had been signed, he went home and did what he'd always done. He just kept right on doing the right thing. Colossians 3.17 says, whatever you do, whatever you do in word or deed, Make sure that you do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. I haven't seen many lately. People used to wear bracelets that said WWJD. You know, what would Jesus do? Well, that's the question. You know, what's the right thing here? And what Daniel did was prove by his life that he did the right thing. But even when the consequences got really big. Uh, death we're talking about here. When the consequences got to that, he still did the right thing. Now, we're tempted to think of this as an Old Testament story. 
Well, here's the king. The, his enemies were coming down on him because he believed in God. It's still happening today, folks. Our, our vice president right now, Mike Pence, seems to be a good man, lives a good life. About a year or so ago, you may remember it came out in the news. I don't know if he brought it up or somebody asked him or what, but it came out that he had a rule for his life that he would never have a meal alone with another woman except his wife. Remember what happened? I mean, does that sound like a good right thing to you? Well, what happened to him? They attacked him like he was a mental case. Uh, What's wrong with this guy? What kind of weird value is that? That's what happened to him in today's world. I I didn't know of him, but I read the other day a story about Tim Farron, who's uh, English and lives in England. He was the leader of the Liberal Democratic Party until recently. It's not too long ago he resigned. Tim Farron's a Christian. And what happened to him was his positions, his beliefs, his views on abortion and homosexuality and a number of today's moral issues were not acceptable. And his party told him, you've got to support our position. You've got to believe what we believe. So Tim Farron resigned. He wrote in his resignation letter, to be a political leader and to live as a committed Christian, to hold faithfully to the Bible's teachings, has felt impossible. I've been the subject of suspicion because of what I believe and who my faith is in. You understand, his party told him, you will worship our God. You will not Bow down to your God. Still happening today. In all kinds of ways it happens. And that's what happened to Daniel. Now, let's emphasize this point about he showed that he trusted God by doing the right thing. Sometimes when we tell stories like this, we emphasize Daniel's courage. We talk about, now, this showed courage. I mean, he walked right into that lion's den. You know, walk right in, sit right down. Make yourself at home. It's just like, that's no problem. Well, we talked last week about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We tell that story that way about them too, but they were probably scared to death. They were probably trembling. I mean, anybody with half sense would, would tremble before a fiery furnace or a lion's den. So Daniel was probably afraid, but we talk about him being so courageous. I think the main one problem is we got the wrong definition of courage. Let me quote John for you about what courage is. John Wayne, actually. John Wayne said, courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. Being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. I imagine Shadrach, Meshach, and together were scared. I imagine Daniel was scared, but they saddled up anyway. They went ahead and did what they had to do because it was the right thing. I don't know how he acted when he went into the lion's den. 
I don't know if he slept much that night or maybe he slept like a baby. I don't know because the angel was there. But he did it. Well, anyhow, we tell the story like the hard part was walking into the den of lions. Here's my position. The hard part was not here. The hard thing was not in the lion's den. I mean, you think about it. Once you open the door and take the first step, you're fully committed to this. Yeah, you're all in. I'm sure he was scared, but what I want you to get is that wasn't the hard part. The hard right thing was here. Wasn't in the lion's den, it was in his room. Last week, we talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and not to think about how hard it was to stand up when everybody else was bowing, but to think about how easy it would have been to bow down. Well, Daniel's the same situation. Think about how easy it would have been for him not to bow down to Jehovah God. Think of all the ways he could have got around this. You know, he could have had a little talk with God. God, God, talk about this. I, I've been praying to you three times a day for 70 years. And I'm going to take 30 days off. You know, I, I've decided it'll be good for my health. It's just 30 days, and then I'll be right back to it. How easy would that have been? You know, or he didn't have to go to the window. He could have stayed in the other part of the room. He could have stayed downstairs. He could have done a lot of things and still prayed to God without being seen or caught. He could have stayed silent. I assume he prayed out loud was how they knew he was praying to Jehovah. He could have sat in the window three times a day and just closed his eyes and prayed silently. And if they confronted him about it, you know, were you praying to Jehovah? Me praying? No, just resting my eyes. No, not me. How easy would that have been? Well, that's why I say here's the hard part. Well, how'd he do that hard right thing? Well, here's a tip for you. Daniel had a habit. Daniel had a habit. For 70 years, he had done the right thing three times a day, and he just kept on. When he knew the law was signed, he did as he had done previously. The three boys last week were to, didn't want to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel wanted to keep bowing down to Jehovah. To Jehovah. All of those are right things. Here's the last point I want to make. Bowing down for the right reason is sometimes really hard. And a little more modern example than Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego might help. Uh, and since this month... Lots of churches in the world are observing a day called Reformation Day. They're remembering Martin Luther. Because 500 years ago this month, he started the Reformation. History says that on October 31st of 1517, he presented his 95 theses about reform. Now, he started an amazing religious movement. 
And I, I know we don't celebrate Reformation Day anyway. We don't think of ourselves as Protestants or Reformed. But I don't think we should ignore Martin Luther. I, we don't agree with all of his doctrine, but we owe him a great deal. And if nothing else, he gave us a very powerful lesson about doing the right thing no matter what. Whether it's a furnace or a lion's den or whatever else. Martin Luther was born in 1483. He was a German. He was a Catholic. If you were a Christian, that's the only option back then. The Catholic Church was it. And the Catholic Church was very political and very secular and, and ran things in a very different way than we think of the church today. Martin Luther's father was a prosperous fellow, and he wanted Luther to go into the law, wanted him to be a lawyer. So Luther started law school when he was old enough. He lasted six weeks. He quit law school to go to a monastery. Daddy was not happy. And the reason that he did that tells us a lot about Martin Luther. That when asked why he did that, he said he was traveling and he was caught in this storm, this unbelievable storm with lightning and things that he had never seen before, and he was convinced he was going to die. That's how bad the storm was. And he said, I made a vow, I promised God, if you'll get me out of this, if I live through this, I'll go become a monk. Well, he lived through the storm. Now, bear in mind, he was the only one that knew about this. How easy would it have been to just go back to law school? But Martin Luther had this mindset. The way he thought about him and God was that if you make a vow to God, you have made a vow to God. So he quit law school and went to the monastery. He trained to be a monk, and then eventually he started going to university to study theology. And understand that the church, like I said, was very political, very secular, very works-oriented. It had all sorts of problems. And so Martin Luther began to see those things. And so he wrote out 95 things that he thought needed to be changed, how the church ought to be reformed. His teaching spread among the common people. Common people loved it. Theologians were kind of in turmoil about some of the things he said. For one thing, he taught that the Bible only is all we need. The church doesn't settle things. The Pope doesn't settle things. The Bible settles things. We call that sola scriptura in Latin. The Bible only, the Scriptures only. He began to teach that. That caused some problems. And of all the other things he brought up, it caused a lot of problems. So they finally had an inquiry. They told him he had to recant all the things that he had written and all the things he was teaching. Uh, they finally brought him before a general council and decided, yeah, he was a heretic. Uh, Pope Leo wrote an official letter to him that said his teachings were heretical, scandalous, and offensive to pious ears. He was a heretic. He was given 60 days to recant all of his teachings. And at this point, you may be thinking, well, what's the big deal here? Why is this a good example? 
I mean, he's teaching things the church didn't like. Why couldn't he just keep on and all that? you got to understand, in those days, when the church branded somebody a heretic, then they burned them. They arrested them. They tied to them a stake and built a bonfire under them and burned them alive. That's what Luther was dealing with. So he was given 60 days to recant all his teaching or be punished as a heretic. At the end of 60 days, Luther, and this tells us a little something about his attitude, at the end of 60 days, Luther's had his students build a bonfire. He dismissed classes, and they all marched out, and he threw the Pope's letter in the bonfire. The Bible settles things, not the Pope. Well, they gave him one last chance. They had one more trial. They put all of his books on a table in front of him, and they said, first question, are these your books? Did you write these things? The answer was, yes, I wrote those. Second question, do you repudiate all of that? Do you recant what you said there and agree with the church now? And Luther stood before them and understand what the punishment was. He said, unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Translation. I'm going to do the right thing. My God is able to deliver me. But if not, I'm still going to do the right thing. Church burned all of his writings, collected as many as they could and burned them. He was liable for arrest and burning. The ruler of Germany, I told you the church was really political. The ruler of Germany kind of kidnapped him and and hid him for about a year. So he wouldn't be burned at the stake. During that year, guess what Luther did? He started to translate the New Testament into German. Because he believed if people could read the Bible, they could understand the Bible. The Bible was all they needed. He started schools for peasants in his lifetime. He wrote lots and lots of hymns to teach the common people. He believed in music, being a great teacher of the scriptures. We still sing some of them. Great songs in our book. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. When you know the story of Luther, you see what that song meant. Anyhow, all of those things he did. Starting a Reformation, teaching that the Bible only was what we needed. Starting the schools, writing all those hymns. All of those things demonstrated his conviction that the Bible was true. The Bible was all that we need. All of that. But when he stood before the council... When he stood before that final trial, my point is he showed his trust in God. Showed his trust in a God who is able, and he did that by doing the right thing. And I know that sounds simple, but that's what it always comes down to. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. That's what Daniel did. That's what Martin Luther did. Just do the right thing. Now, we may be tempted to think that the climax of the story 
is when Daniel triumphantly strolls out of the lion's den. But that's not the climax. The real result of the story is we can read about it starting in verse 25. After Daniel had come out of the lion's den, after all the enemies had been eaten up, then King Darius wrote to all the people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. That king could preach. That was the good part. Daniel lived to see God glorified. He lived all this life. He faced all these tests. He kept doing the right thing. And he got to see God glorified. Do you remember what Peter said about that? Live such good lives among the pagans that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they'll see your good deeds And someday, maybe by the end of their life, they'll glorify God. That's what this is. That's the end of this. Well, there's one other thing. The next verse says, So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus. God blesses faithfulness along with being glorified himself. All right, let's close up. Here's your question for the day. Am I able? Am I able? We've been talking about four boys that grew up to serve God and believed in a God who is able. Are you able? Ask yourself that question. Am I able? Well, am I able to what? Well, here's the first one. Am I able to live a good life before the pagans? Am I able to do that? Now, I realize it's kind of overwhelming if you think about it as your life, especially if you're... 15 or 16 or something, you think, am I able to live a good life for the rest of my life? Don't think of it that way. Answer this question. Am I able to live a good life before the pagans tomorrow? If you can answer that one, yes. Well, then do it. Live a good life among the pagans tomorrow. And then when you get up Tuesday morning, ask yourself again, am I able to live a good life before the pagans today? The answer is yes, then do that. Uh, That's what Christians are supposed to do. Live a life worthy of the calling we've received. Ask yourself, am I able to do the right thing? Once again, don't think about, am I able to do the right thing every time forever? Think about it, am I able to do the right thing this time? The next time I have a choice, am I able to do the right thing? I know what God wants. Sometimes we don't know. But usually we know. The question is, am I going to do it or not? So when you know what the right thing to do, are you able to do that? Even if the consequences are bad. Even if there's lions or furnaces or whatever. Am I able to do the right thing this time? I hope your answer to those questions is 
what the title of this sermon is, I am able because, not in and of myself, but I'm able because I serve a God who is able. I'm able because I serve a God who is able to deliver me, but if not, I still trust him and I'm going to do the right thing. We're going to sing a song that puts that concept into modern-day Christian language. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. You need to respond in any way publicly. Come, let's stand and sing.